Timothy. Turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we can get one in your hands. Just raise your hand. We'll be glad to give you one. One over here. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Chapter Thessalonians. That doesn't help you? Well, just go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just keep going until you get to Timothy. So 1 Timothy, starting uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 13. This is Paul writing, and he starts this 13th verse with these words. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Do you remember some of the ignorant things you did before salvation? Some of them we'd like to forget, right? We did them ignorantly because we were blinded and we did not believe what God had already said in many cases. Verse 14, he goes on, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Let's pray. Lord, these words written two millennia ago still ring true today. Lord, we were ignorant, unbelief, insolent, arrogant, lustful, whatever, fill in the blank, Lord, all the above, dishonest. And Lord, you were abundant in mercy and rich in grace. And you reached down. You called us by name. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you personally, isn't ready to meet you if you should call their name and number, Lord, that today would be the day that they find the living God, the saving Jesus, and salvation. Lord, we're looking at grace this morning. May your grace fall upon me as I share these words. May your grace fall upon the hearers. May your grace just flood this room. Lord, wash us by your grace, by your mercy. Use this text and use this message, Lord, to bring honor and glory to you, but also, Lord, to remind us that we have a grace that sustains us and transforms us day by day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul mentions the word grace here, does he not? But he mentions the word grace at least 80 times in the New Testament epistles. That's far more times than any other writer in the entire Bible. And in fact, it's more than all the biblical authors combined. Paul mentions grace more than all other authors combined. He considered himself to be the least of the apostles. Isn't that amazing? Today we consider him to be the greatest of the apostles, but he considered himself to be the least of all the apostles. It was said of Moses that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Today we think of Moses as one of the greatest men to ever live. Don't you think God's telling us something by that? Men that think of themselves as nothing, God will exalt and use in a great way. But he had been chosen by God. Paul believed he 
personally believed that God had chosen him for the express reason to prove that anybody could be saved. He believed that the reason he was chosen is to prove that anyone, no matter how low, no matter how vile, filthy, could be saved. And not only saved, but then actually used in service to God. His conversion is mentioned three times in the book of Acts. That's the most documented personal story in the entire New Testament, aside from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. After that is Paul's conversion. Jesus himself said he had chosen Paul, speaking directly to Paul, said he had chosen Paul to turn people from darkness to light throughout the Roman and Jewish world. His impact, even today, is amazing. Paul's impact today, wouldn't you say it's still amazing? It's still amazing today because the grace he received was amazing and it was supernatural. Fast forward more than 1,700 years later, and a hymn would be written in England titled Amazing Grace. The words would emphasize the same heart and deep gratitude and undeserved grace that Paul shared everywhere he went. Fast forward another 400 plus years, and this same hymn, written in 1779, is now sung you know how many times Amazing Grace is sung yearly in church services worldwide? It is sung an estimated 10 million times per year in worldwide church services and gatherings. This renowned song has appeared on 11,000 plus albums. 11,000 plus albums. Translated into languages worldwide. You can go anywhere in the world. And Amazing Grace has been translated into that language. It's been referred to as the most beloved hymn of the last two centuries. Its author was a man by the name of John Newton. John could have never imagined that God could use him, much less that he would have any positive impact on anyone. If you met John Newton in his early 20s, Like the Apostle Paul, you would assume, I would assume, here's a person that will never follow Jesus. That's what you would have thought. But grace defies all odds, doesn't it? It flows from a limitless love and a limitless God, doesn't it? Grace comes from the one who sees past where people are at. I spent some time this past week reading the original letters You can actually read them. They're in a PDF form. Uh, These are 252 pages of letters. I spent some time reading them. They fascinated me. I just kind of poured through them. Over the last week, these letters were written by John Newton to a fellow pastor. John Newton was born, and, and I'm just pulling all this out of the letters I wrote, and I'm just paraphrasing what he said of his own life, and I'm now sharing it with you. Uh, John Newton was born in 1725 to a Christian and Puritan woman in England. John was her only child. She taught little John to read by the age of, uh, to read early, very early in life, and by the age of four, he could read any common book. At this young age, he began to learn scripture, hymns, poems, memorized many things at a young age. 
By the age of six, his mother began teaching him Latin. It's a challenge for you moms. <laughs> but just a few weeks shy of his seventh birthday, his mother died in July of 1732. His father was in the Mediterranean Sea at the time of his mother's death, commanding a trade ship on a lengthy voyage. About a year later, his father finally returned, and he soon remarried. Although John was treated well, he began to be influenced by other young people and began acquiring a taste for the world he never had when he was under the care of his mother. He eventually ends up going to boarding school where more negative influences start to impact his life. He, from time to time, returns in his mind to the scriptures of his youth. You ever have, remember before you were saved, you sometimes remember a verse, you remember a church service, and then it would like fade as quickly as it came back in, right? And these, these things would come back, and he had this back and forth battle in his heart to either live for God or pursue the pleasures of this world. At one point in his teens, he tries very, very hard. Listen, teenagers. At one point in his teens, he tries very hard to read his Bible, to pray, to study, and even to fast. Lengthy fast. For a short period, he avoids meat altogether as a means to deny his flesh and try and live a simple ascetic life. But he said it just felt empty. It felt dead. It felt meaningless. Sometime later, he ends up reading a book that convinces him that the meaning and purpose of life is not necessarily in the scriptures. He said this was a slow little deception here. It's not necessarily in the scriptures. There's other things that have truth. Paraphrasing his words, this book, which he found in Holland on a, on a shipping trip, loosens him up to deception. He becomes more or less a devotee to the author's philosophies. Yet from time to time, he still keeps going back to the Bible. Sometimes in his mind, sometimes he'd pick up a Bible, thinking about God, and there was this continual tug of war for his heart and his soul. Did you know there's a tug of war for everyone's heart and soul? You think people that you meet have never thought about the things of God, but I'm here to tell you they have, more than they'll ever tell you. It's a tug of war for everybody. As he comes of age to find a fixed purpose in his life, you know, you've got to find a career, you've got to finally put your roots down, what are you going to do in life? After a few stints and voyages on ships, uh, he started going at sea. I think his first trip with his father was like 11 or 12. His father arranges him to go and live in Jamaica. We have some Jamaican people that attend this church, but he wasn't going there for a vacation. He would go to Jamaica for five years. This was the plan anyway. His father wanted him to go to Jamaica for five years, work for a plantation enterprise, and to earn money and build savings that he could use for the next phase of life. But it was on a three-day visit to another town, town of Kent in England. Before setting sail, he sees the woman of his dream. She's only 14 at the time. And he purposely misses the ship to kind of get to know her, and maybe someday he could court her and marry her. So the ship heads on to the Caribbean without him. His father, a little disappointed but not too mad about it, helps arrange a backup option with a trading ship headed to Italy. And it's on this trip to Italy 
where he really begins to adopt the course and the cravings of the world with all these other sailors. He would end up becoming worse than all the sailors he met. They said that he was like too much for them at times. He becomes of the same mouth and the same mindset of these godless sailors he's working with. He said at times, at times he would have this sharp conviction of his sins. But as time went on, the conviction faded. And he was making, as he said, large strides toward complete apostasy from God. Large strides to complete darkness. But while he was in Venice, Italy, in the harbor there in Venice, he has a dream that he wouldn't remember for years later, but it haunted him for several days. And here's how the dream went. He's on the ship. In his dream, he's on the ship. The ship's in the harbor. And he's standing there. He's looking over the ship down in the water. And a man comes up and gives him a ring and says, put this ring on and don't ever take it off. It will be the means of your protection and life and joy and peace. And if you keep this ring on, you will be protected from harm and all types of evil and darkness. So he puts the ring on, but another man comes up after that man leaves and says, do you really believe all that? Do you really believe a little piece of metal has any kind? And he, he works him over and just won't relent until he finally says, you're right, this ring couldn't be worth anything, and he drops it into the sea. A few minutes later, um, the second, oh, so, I'm sorry, the second it drops into the sea, the second it drops into the sea, he looks up, and the mountains, the Alps there in Italy, burst into flames. The second he drops the ring, it's in his dream, the second he drops the ring into the harbor there, the mountains burst into flames, and he knows immediately in his heart that he will go through flames and that flames await him as he dropped that ring into the sea. As he's there and he's completely depressed, mortified at what he's done, not even understanding it all, another man, a third man comes to him, but he can't remember the third man was actually the first man. You ever had a dream you can't remember exactly how? The third man was either a third different man or it was the same first man. And he comes to him and he says, why are you so sad and despondent? And he said, I've made a grave mistake. I was given this ring to wear that would protect me and keep me. And I foolishly dropped it into the sea. And this man says, if this ring were to be given back to you, would you now take it off ever again? And he said, I should think I wouldn't. The man goes, plunges into the water, comes back up with the ring, and says... I will keep it until you're ready to wear it. And then he wakes up. Now, do you think that he made this dream? Who do you think sent him this dream? For three days, he could hardly eat or sleep or anything. He was haunted by the dream. But after three days, he kind of let it fade, and he went back to the way he was living he ends up being assigned to the British Navy. He gets back to England at some point. He deserts at a port of call when he's looking for some uh, different opportunity. And when he deserts, he's arrested. He's brought back to the ship by the British Navy. He's stripped to the waist and lashed 96 times on his back. Reduced to the lowest rank possible, he becomes suicidal, deeply depressed, and dreams of killing the ship's commander. 
It's, on, it's this on and off again obsession with killing the captain and the other counterbalance obsession with potentially marrying that girl he met that keeps him from committing suicide. Did you know that there's things in your life long before you got saved that God used to keep you from going completely the opposite direction? So those two things, the thought of I can kill the captain or I can marry, kept him from taking his own life. Those two things, they kind of were the two balances that kept him from killing his own self. He, um, he later settles, though. His rage and depression starts to fade. But by this time, he's lost all fear of God. He has no sense of conscience, he says, at this point. He's now capable of any sin. He firmly believes that if he should die, he would just simply cease to exist. He's rejected everything he ever heard from the Bible. He's a man now with no moral compass. He does, at this point, do some decent work finally, and he finds enough pity with the ship's captain that he's allowed to exchange his naval service and join a slave trading ship headed to Africa. John Newton said it was from this time forward as he entered that slave ship, slave ship as a total stranger and a brand new member of that crew that he threw off any restraints and wickedness became the course of his life. All restraints were thrown off. He became, as he said, extremely vile. But by his attitude and arrogance, even among other wicked guys, he had a falling out of favor with the new captain. He ends up on an island off the coast of Africa, selling himself as an indentured servant because he was kicked off the ship with nothing but this clothes on his back. He sells himself as an indentured servant to an English slave trader who is married to an African wife who has operations on the island there on the northwest coast of Africa. Uh, his master leaves, and he's given as a slave to his, uh, to his wife. While a slave himself, he nearly starves and lives off the scraps on the ground just like one of the dogs. But he never humbles his heart and turns to God. He said that neither the mercies of God nor the judgments of God had any impact on his heart. Yet he survives. He survives severe illness, near death numerous times, weakness, and he's living like a prodigal and a pig, if you will, on the ground. About a year later, he's allowed to move to a new master on the same island. He ends up it, by providence of God, uh, a ship comes from England looking for him because someone wants to bring him back to put him on a different, uh, a different ship. And he happens to be 200 miles up the coast, and the ship comes by, and they see it, and they happen to flag it down for some supplies, and they ask if he's there, and it's him. And he's taken out of that island back to England. He goes on to be involved uh, in shipping, Sometimes slave trade, sometimes other things. In 1748, though, uh, he is on the, um, on the Middle Passage, which goes from England down to Africa, over the West Indies, and back up to England. And in 1748, they're headed back up the north coast, past Newfoundland, all the way up towards Ireland, and the ship encounters incredible storms that beats the ship to a pulp. Everyone is certain they're going to die. The master is destroyed. Every, the ship has a massive hole. He cries out to mercy for God in the cold North Atlantic seas. And when he cries out to mercy, all the shipping cargo moves and suctions the hole. 
it then drifts all the way to the coast safely, and he was convinced that God saved his life. God answers his prayer, and he starts to believe from that moment, he starts to believe that Jesus is true. He immediately gives up drinking, gives up gambling, gives up swearing. But he says he does not become, and this is very important for many Americans that actually believe a lot of truth, he said he's not yet born again, though. He's had an awakening, he's had an eye-opening, but not a soul conversion yet. He says he does not become born again, not truly converted, not transformed until sometime later. Like Paul, remember when Paul heard Jesus? First, Paul heard Jesus, but the scales were still on his eyes for a couple days, weren't they? The scales were still there. They hadn't, they hadn't fully fallen off. He even continues for a time, even though he believes that God has had mercy on him, he continues in the slave trade. Not yet fully converted to Christ, not fully awakened to the evils of human trafficking. There's still some blindness there. Two years later, John Newton finally marries that girl he saw many years earlier. They caught his eye, Mary Catlett. They would live as husband and wife for the next 40 years. After a stroke at the age of 29, and they don't know really exactly what happened, he had this fit which laid him out on the ground for an hour where he was barely breathing. To this day, no one really knows exactly what it was. He never had it happen ever again. But God slayed him to the ground, and God forcibly removed him from shipping and the slave trade at that moment. And all that came with it, he ends up, Sometime after that, not too long after that, fully surrendering his life to Jesus Christ. Finally, truly converted, born again. And by when that happens, that ring that God was holding finally went on his finger. Remember, it had been held all that time. He said, I will not give you this ring until you are ready to wear it. That ring went on. And by 1764, he, was, he had become a pastor. He was studying and training up until that time. He began to study and train for the ministry. Uh, he had taught himself Latin, what his mom had started with. He had taught himself Latin all those years on the ship. He just read all the Latin books and just uh, had become fluent in Latin, picking out where his mother left off in his years at sea. Uh, but he also ended up and he's studying for the ministry. He began to read Greek and Hebrew, and he taught himself Greek and Hebrew so he could better understand the meanings of Scripture. He became later a prolific hymn writer. And a lot of the hymns that he wrote, the Lord put it on his heart to start a weekly prayer meeting. And in the prayer meeting, after each prayer meeting, him and another pastor would write down what they thought God said in the meeting, and it would become a hymn. We just had a prayer meeting Wednesday night. I never thought of that. <laughs> but they used prayer meetings to be the impetus to write a hymn. He would go on to be directly influenced by George Whitfield and John Wesley. The longer he walked with Christ, studied the scriptures, preached the gospel, ministered to people, the more he saw the grotesque evil of his past life and the suffering of the souls and the slave trade in which he was once employed in. But like Paul, he said, I was ignorant and in unbelief. He said, I never saw it for what it really was because I didn't even have any care in the world about it. In his own estimation, it should have happened sooner than it did, but in 1788, he 
he published and detailed a condemning pamphlet titled Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. It was a groundbreaking thing. You know, at that time, the British Empire was the most powerful empire on earth. Um, as a faithful pastor now, he used his place in the ministry, the voice God had given to challenge the established and inhumane practice of the world's most powerful empire at the time. At that time, they said the, the sun never set on the British Empire, but he wrote this scathing expose on the slave trade. The grace that he had received and what he would write and what he would challenge, he gave a copy to every single member in Parliament. And he said he'd, if he offended them all, it was okay because of the evil that it was what God had revealed to him. And what he, he said, the, or uh, he had experienced so much grace, but the grace that he experienced lit the spark that he would want to see others set free from every sort of sin and bondage, regardless of what it was. One young man in his church was so influenced by his life, his name was William Wilberforce. You guys heard of him? William, uh, William Wilberforce was so inspired that he fought tirelessly against British slavery until it was ended in basically the last year of John Newton's life. The last year of his life. Sadly, it would be America that would keep slavery for many years to come. Britain actually ended it far sooner. And it was God had used John Newton and then men that served under him to basically blow the doors open on what it was. We would not even know many of the horrific things about the slave trade had Newton not written about them. Other people were keeping it all a secret. He, he exposed it all. In a strange way, God takes people and puts them in the worst of places to expose it. Isn't that interesting? Paul could speak to certain things because he had been there. He said of his prior involvement in slavery... I hope it, listen to what he says about himself. If you're looking for a great name, this was is, this is not John Newton's heart. He said of his prior involvement in slavery, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. He said he hoped he would always be humiliated in history forward that he was ever involved at all. Though he was deeply ashamed of his past, again, it took a man exposed to such evil and in such evil to speak about it and say, this is from the pits of hell. Paul could speak to the depths and works of legalism, couldn't he? Because he was fully zealous to the point of killing and persecuting Christians. Uh, Paul was saved out of that, that he could speak directly to it. This is uh, the epitaph of John Newton today. You can see the words that he, that he says of himself. Clerk, which means preacher, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved when that ring was in the water. God preserved him anyway, restored, hardened, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. 
near 16 years curate, which means minister of the parish, and 28 years as rector, which is a higher level minister there in St. Mary's. You know, some people would even look at him and say, yeah, I wouldn't even talk to John Newton. The fact that he was ever involved in it in the first place. But you know, God uses vile people and changes them. Do you know if God didn't do what he did with John Newton, slavery might have went on for many more years, at least in England. It did in the United States. Sadly, it did in the United States. But if God didn't turn his heart, then many other people wouldn't have been saved. This, just this week, I was doing my research. This is getting added to my summer reading list. As I was researching John Newton, I came upon the life of this man. I'd never even heard of him before. But I'm going to read it this summer, and I'll, if anyone wants to read it, uh, I can hardly say his name, but his, last name, his other name, Gustavus Vasa, I can say. But he studied the scriptures, and it was studying the scriptures that led him to find his freedom out of slavery. But I didn't even know about him until I started studying the life of John Newton. So God uses one man that he'll actually do a 180 in their life to bring many other people. And what is that called? It's called grace. And that's how he could write the words amazing grace. Amen? Because he had received such grace. Jesus says, he who has been forgiven much will do what? Love much. Will love much. He all of a sudden had a, John Newton had a love for all kinds of people that he had never cared about before. It didn't matter what they looked like. God had just completely changed the way he viewed people because he had changed them on the inside by grace. Back to our text for just a moment. Paul says here, I was formerly. Aren't you glad that you are formerly a lot of things? I was formerly. Newton said, I was formerly a slave traitor. I was formerly vile. I was formerly this. I was formerly that. But I obtained mercy. I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Looking back, it isn't a pretty sight when we see what we were, the evidence of what we've done. But the evidence of grace, God changes us by the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? Things that we could never bring about. We could never change ourselves. We need someone to jump into the water and go down and find that ring. We could never find that ring. Amen? That ring is gone. But Jesus can go down the bottom of the ocean and say, I know exactly where it is. And I'm going to put it on your hand. We have thrown over the ship, if you will, many things that God has pulled back up out of the sea on our behalf. John Newton remembered his shameful past. Paul remembered the blasphemer and persecutor he once was. But grace that came from the blood of Christ forever changed him. Do you realize that some people would have never wanted to talk to the Apostle Paul? They'd say, that man was a murderer. I will not even talk to him. I'm a good person. He was an evil person. You, you think I'm kidding. I guarantee you there were people that wouldn't go near him. There would be some people who I'll, I'll God may forgive him, but I won't forgive him. You ever heard people say that? I've heard people say that. God will forgive them, but I won't. Sad reality is we'll have to stand before God someday. So that, that philosophy will only take you to your last breath. But until we saw Jesus, until we saw the love and believed in his words, we were lost too. We were blind. It wasn't, nor is it now, our physical eyesight that's been the problem. I mean, if you're, even if you don't have great eyesight, and many of you are wearing glasses like I have to wear glasses, but our physical eyesight really isn't the problem. Newton had plenty of physical eyesight to have lust, to steer a ship, to trade human beings. Paul had plenty of eyesight to watch and even approve of people being murdered right at his feet. 
to knock down doors and arrest saints and to pull children away from their parents and to pull parents away from their kids. Paul had plenty of eyesight to march to Damascus to go and persecute the church, but then Jesus blinded him, didn't he? Jesus called him. Do you realize that God calls really wicked people? He calls them out of nowhere. Paul, Paul, or Saul at that time. Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? Jesus had to blind him physically and speak to him audibly to show he was spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. And a lot of times, and down through history, God has shown men and women that they were spiritually blind, spiritually deaf. And I know for me, I remember the tug of war in my life before I finally came to know the Lord. I believe, I don't believe, I believe, I don't believe, I believe, I don't believe. Finally, God says, what are you going to do? Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant, the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The grace of our Lord is what? Exceedingly abundant. You know, we can't really understand the, the, the magnitude of that phrase because exceedingly abundant is enough for all the sins that have ever been committed by all the people on, of all time. Before the flood, after the flood, before Tower of Babel, after Tower of Babel, all the way to the end of the age. God's grace is greater. Where sin abounded, grace, the grace of God has far more abounded. We are saved through faith, finally believing. We did it in unbelief, but when we say, Jesus, we believe that you are the only way and that we are hopeless without your help. God will reach down into the sea and pull us up. But it's not just the grace that saves us that we sing about. The amazing grace is not just the saving grace. Praise God that grace did not end with salvation. Amen? You and I need as much grace today as we ever did at any second in our life. We don't always know that. We don't always appreciate that. We don't always sense that. We might, sense, uh, we might just be sitting on the back porch, sipping lemonade, and think life is perfect. Oh, right now, I just don't need much but just this breeze. No, we need grace as much today as we ever did with salvation. Part of sustaining grace is that God wants us to live forever at the throne of grace. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He says back here, the, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are, now this is present tense, which are in, not was, in Christ Jesus. The grace of God keeps us in his faith and in his love. Does that make sense? You and I don't keep ourselves in the love of God. The grace of God keeps us in the love of God. Why do we know that to be true? Part of that sustaining, sustaining grace has to keep us at the throne of grace. We can never forget that our salvation was by grace, but that our walk is now of grace. That we understand that the scriptures are telling us the truth when it says our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. That's why we can never get a big head and say, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I have exceeded this person sitting beside me. Sadly, some husbands and wives, they think, I'm really righteous and they are not. I'm this. I've, you know, everyone else in the church has, I'm glad I don't struggle with that stuff anymore. Other people do. Our righteousness is filthy rag. The best day, I've said this many times, Lord laid it on my heart many years ago, and I've said it many times, the best day I have ever had spiritually is still nothing 
but waste to God. And you too. The best day you've ever had, God is not impressed. We still have to be at the throne of grace. This statement of grace really hit me when I read it earlier this year in the book um, that I've been reading, Grace is Greater, by Kyle Eidelman. He wrote the book, The Fan. He said, if the biggest sinner you know isn't you, you don't know yourself very well. <laughs> I first read it, I had the same reaction as Pastor Eidelman. I'm like, I don't know about that. I know some really bad people. I've met some really bad people. And, and besides all that, Paul said, I was formerly this. I was formerly that. Hmm. Paul did say he was formerly all that. He said, I'm glad I was formerly a persecutor, an insolent man. I did it ignorantly, blah, blah, blah. I was all these evil things. But then look at verse 15. Paul said, all this stuff I was, but then he says, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I was chief. What does he say? I am chief of sinners. How do we rectify this? Where Paul is saying, on the one hand, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for grace. I'm no longer a persecutor. I'm no longer vile. I'm no longer violent. I no longer am callous. And yet, two verses later, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Not was, am. You can circle am. That's current state. He says, I'm the worst of the worst. Not was the worst, am the worst. Hmm. Paul knew that Nero was alive at that time. Would anyone here think Nero was worse than Paul? You don't even want to read the things Nero did. You, you'll get nauseous. And yet Paul said, I'm the worst of sinners. He didn't say Nero was. He said he was. What is the Spirit saying here? Honestly, I don't know the full weight of what God's saying, but I, I get a glimpse of it. I can't. I, this is one of these mysteries, I think, when I get to heaven. Lord, can you explain verse 13 15? Can you put these two together and help me fully understand what you said to your servant Paul, that at the same time he was glad he wasn't, at the same time he says, I'm the chief of sinners? What exactly is the Holy Spirit saying? It's a paradox, isn't it? That we can at the one time, one hand be extremely grateful we've been fully forgiven, but the other on the other hand, still recognize that we are filthy rags. And that's a great place to be. Remember I said Moses was the most humble man? He didn't look and say, these complaining Israelites are the lowest of the low. He was the most humble man. When we go lower and don't look at other people and say, well, they have a long way to go, but I have come a long way. The more we look at ourselves and say, Lord, I'm the worst the more God says, now I'm going to lift you even more in my grace. Grace is given to the humble. This understanding of grace gives us a deep compassion. What it really does, it allows us to forgive other people for anything. I guarantee in this room there's people harboring bitterness. Guarantee it. I guarantee there's people in this room that have not and will not to this moment have not forgiven somebody for something, and they don't even want to forgive somebody for something because they still think that person owes me. They don't owe you. They owe God. We're the chief of sinners. Once grace has flown through us and we really recognize where we're at, amazing grace is received 
When it's received and it's cultivated in our life, we say, Lord, it's only by grace. It's only by grace. It's only by grace. It's only by your grace. I don't deserve the next breath. I don't deserve, uh, all I had was Cheerios. I don't really deserve that. I didn't get the raise that I wanted. I don't deserve it anyway. Once you really believe, I'm not, this isn't talking about beating yourself like Martin Luther did before he got saved. This isn't talking about self-pity. This is talking about the reality of saying, Lord, I am nothing at the foot of the cross without your help. Amen? And you come to really believe that, and I come to really believe that, it will then flow continuously like a fountain in us. And you will, you might write a song that someday will be sung 10 million times a year. That might be sung. I just pulled up this morning. I, was, I wanted to look up something on the persecuted church. Lo and behold, I look it up on the persecuted church, open doors, and there, right there on the page, is a woman from North Korea singing Amazing Grace in Korea. And it was God confirming me, you are supposed to preach this this morning. <laughs> Just letting me know. So you, you, sometimes I wonder, I say, Lord, am I really supposed to preach this? I done this, I do it. You guys say, yes, go tell them about grace. Preach about grace. It's going to then, when we willingly receive this grace, we're going to willingly give it out to other people. We're going to give it to people. They're going to say, look, I, I blew it. I did this, I did that, I, I harmed you, I gossiped about you, I stabbed you. Maybe they never tell you, but you just know it, and you love them anyway. Jesus said on the cross, what? Father, forgive them, they not, know not what they do, except for Paul and John Newton. Did he say that? Mm -mm. He, said it, he didn't say except anybody, did he? Except Charles Manson, except this person, except, I don't care, except Adolf Hitler. Now, some of those people have died and have gone to eternity in hell, but not because God didn't give them an opportunity, but because they rejected the opportunity. You and I have received grace. Now we must give it. Paul wrote it so many times, over 80 times, because he had received grace. He couldn't stop talking about grace, and it allowed him to just be an instrument that flowed. This understanding of grace gives us this ability to move forward in the strength of God you see, amazing grace will not only save us, but it's sweet to the sound because of what we receive, but it's also our constant need. Amen? Our constant need. John Newton, when you, even when you hear about his own life, he says, I didn't mature as fast as some people might have thought I could, should, or would, or even as I wanted myself. But over time, as the more he understood grace, the more God just rang every bit. Some of you may say, I've not really matured as fast as I would have liked to. Or the person beside me wants me to. But you can say, Lord, thank you for grace. It was Newton who said, I'm not what I, he said, I thank God. Um, I'm not what I used to be. Not what I, no, he said, I'm not. Oh, whatever. He said, I'm not what I, hold on, see if I can get, the, the latter part of it is important though. He says, I'm not who I ought to be, but I'm not who I used to be. And the more you receive grace, the more you understand grace, the more God says, I'm going to change you from who you used to be, minute by minute, day by day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning again for your amazing grace. Lord, so undeserved. I pray, Lord, that um, the grace that you showed Paul, the grace that you showed John Newton, the grace that you've shown us, 
Lord, will become, I don't care if we're 80 or 18 or 8, it'll become more amazing to us day by day as we sit at the throne room of your grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.